you can't get compensated for the capital that you bring to a deal by itself. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with Johnny Catani, who I had the pleasure of meeting at PodFest recently um, in Orlando. So that should tell you that Johnny also has a podcast. He uh, is a capital raising guy out of Salt Lake City in the U.S. And so, Johnny, by way of introduction, why don't you tell us your journey through life has been to lead you to be on the show with me today? Yeah, what a journey it's been. Uh, let's see. Went to college, didn't actually finish college. We'll kind of start there. That's probably the, the best place to start. Kind of bounced around through different jobs. Never really found anything I liked until I found uh, finance in the way of being a stockbroker. So I was a stockbroker for uh, E-Trade, which is a discount brokerage, what they call a discount brokerage where you know, you don't have to have millions of dollars in order to have an account, basically. But I was finan- did have financial licenses and worked in that industry for three years and worked my way up to high net worth individuals. Uh, these were individuals who did have millions of dollars uh, in assets, you know, anywhere from five million plus, basically. And what I discovered pretty early on is that they all had real estate in their portfolio. And what I would end up doing is I would help them do the paperwork to invest in real estate through their uh, self-directed 401ks and IRAs. And through that, got to talking to them and kind of learning, you know, how you invest in real estate. And, you know, that led to podcasts, of course, to books, and then, of course, to the book or uh, here in the U.S., what we call the Purple Bible, which is a uh, rich dad, poor dad, uh, Robert Kiyosaki. So that led me to that, and I quickly grasped on to uh, commercial real estate. And really, here all commercial real estate means is just the way the loan type is done. So when when you think of commercial lending, the easiest way to put it is anything that has five units or more. Uh, so quickly discovered that and, you know, left the corporate world, went to the, uh, startup world and did some tech startups, got laid off because of COVID took some time off. And in that time, I found a group here locally in Salt Lake city that was investing out of state in apartments and helped them scale from 70 units to 570 units in honestly less than a year it was very very fast and through that found kind of a niche in the industry which is capital raising and essentially what that is is whenever you're doing these big commercial real estate deals in this case apartments you're typically using a structure called syndication where you have a general partnership that owns and operates the apartment, and then you have your limited partners, which are all basically investors. And my job as a capital raiser is to find investors and bring them to these deals because, you know, these deal sizes are large, right? 10, 20, 30 plus million dollar deals. And people don't just have that laying around. So they go outside and raise money from investors and in return, typically give them 
some kind of of cash flow in the way of a preferred return and then there's typically some kind of you know equity multiplier at the end when they either sell or refinance so that's kind of the uh the reader's digest version there if you will okay so it's it's i mean this all sounds pretty similar we're up in canada and montreal and so this is like sounds fairly similar to the way um things work here um we don't call it syndication like it ends up being some kind of joint venture um and i think the corporate structure might be a little bit different but a lot of similarities there so i want to um just you know poke at something there was a lot of information there um and i just want to understand like uh so we we actually have three different distinctions. So we have residential property, which is five doors and under in Canada. We have multi-residential, which is anything six doors and over. And we have commercial, which is like what you would think of as commercial. So like a strip mall, um, a play property with with commercial space on the ground floor. So like when we would call that multifamily, but like explain to me, how does multifamily lending, how is it different from the other types of lending in the US? I just want to check if it's the same kind of thing as here. It honestly is. The reason that I make the distinction is because when I tell people that I'm in commercial real estate, they automatically assume offices. And obviously with the pandemic, office space is getting crushed right now. And so people are like, oh man, business must be really struggling right now. But it's not, right? Commercial real estate really encompasses all of these asset classes, which are you know office building, including your suburban like you were saying, retail space, you know, you have industrial space, you've got multifamily, uh, self-storage, right? And so the way the lending works is it's all similar, right? It's all typically from your same same lenders, you know, for for just generally speaking, but it's all considered commercial lending. You know, it, it's not your residential lending. So after residential lending, just to kind of put it all into one bucket, it's considered commercial. Okay. But so I guess what I want to get at is, um, so in Canada, for example, commercial properties, so like you said, industrial, um, those, those kind of things, uh, office buildings, retail space, that gets financed in one way. Then we have multi-residential, which gets financed another way. And then we have residential, which gets financed even another way. So like, I just want to check that multifamily gets uh, financed on economic value, the same, I guess, the same way as it would here. Like how does a bank go about deciding how much they're going to lend you on a deal like that? Yeah. So it, it it operates on a cap rate and on an NOI basically, which is the net operating income. So yeah, it's, it's more on, on the economics as opposed to, you know, the comparables like residential, right? Residential, it's really just when at whatever the same type of house sold for within like a, you know, one to three mile radius, whatever the last house sold for just like yours is basically what yours is worth more or less. Right. Whereas, uh, with multifamily, it's based on, you know, your, your net operating income, which is basically all of your income minus your expenses before any debt. And they're not looking at the owner personally because yes. that's the other well, difference, right? Well, so not, not on a personal like credit score level, right? What your personal okay. credit is like or even your personal... They'll look at your personal finances in terms of your total net worth. So you can only get a commercial loan up to your net worth. So part of doing big deals is having someone that has a big net worth. They call it a, a key principle. 
And so you can only get a loan up to basically the key principal's net worth. Uh, but really what they're looking at is your track record as a business, right? If if you're buying a hundred unit apartment complex and up to this point, you've only bought 20 units, they're going to you know, ask a lot of questions and most likely you're not going to get that loan unless you're partnering with someone who's done a deal you know, to that size. Isn't that interesting? So, so let me make sure I understand this properly. So like somebody who does this, does, does the net worth include the new property or it excludes the new property? It excludes the new property. It's oh, basically, yeah. That's so interesting. See, our laws are not like that at all. Like they will lend here on the economic value of the property. That's it. So like if the property can pay for itself or the level to which it can pay for itself, they will lend that much money irrespective of what your or anyone, any partner's net worth is. So, wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. That is fascinating. That's a that's an interesting nuance. And, and part of it is because, well, it, and I'll just speak for here. A, a big part of it is because you're talking about a pace, place people have, are living, right? It's a necessity. And so they don't want someone coming in and mucking it all up who has no idea what they're doing and you know, then you've got tenants who are having a, you know, bad time. And um, there's just a lot of moving parts, especially as you get, you know, into these larger uh, apartment buildings. And so they really want to make sure you have the track record. You've done it before proven as well as, you know, you've got the net worth to cover it. And the net worth part really is to cover the lenders because if they have to come in, and basically liquidate they want to make sure that you can cover it you know so they're not out you know 10 20 whatever however many millions of dollars they lend that's it's so interesting i think this is the first time i have a conversation with someone in the states where we uncover something where you guys are more regulated than we are we're like we're ultimate most regulated but well i guess like in light of 2008 like we really didn't have 2008 here and so in light of that, it makes sense that they would build those kind of controls into the way your lending works. Whereas like in Canada, it's like, well, it's never going to go down. So <laughs> yeah, lending, yes. Lending changed drastically in a way all the way from the residential to the commercial. Now, ironically, in a way commercial, uh, and, I'll, and I'll speak for apartments uh, specifically, apartments didn't get crushed like residential. You weren't seeing, you know, 30, 40% decreases because again, commercial or apartments operate on an NOI, right? So economically. And so in a way, more people actually became renters, right? And so rent actually only dipped a little bit um, and then kind of plateaued. And then, you know, as the economy came back, it started to go back up. Whereas residential being based on, you know, kind of supply and as well as your comparables, you know, with houses going for, you know, pennies on the dollar, you saw, you know, 30, 40% decreases in some markets. Whereas with property, not with the actual property value, not playing them that big of a role in, in the commercial space, you didn't see it getting crushed, but what you did see to come full circle is, is the lending change. And, and with the economy changing now, with rising interest rates, lending has clamped down even harder. So it's even more challenging now to to get these loans. Wow. Interesting. Okay. But like, so let's not keep this, let's not make the sidebar the interview. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. No, I mean, it's just fascinating. I like went on that little <laughs> tangent myself. Um, 
But so tell me a bit more about what you do exactly. So I'm assuming you have like a typical kind of deal with a typical kind of return. And that's kind of your business model in terms of what you pitch. So you want to tell me about that real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So on the capital side, there's a few different ways that you can uh, be a part of these deals. So I'll kind of start with the structure first, right? So your basic structure, right? We talked about uh, syndications. Uh, we also have joint ventures as well, um, also a very common structure, but just a little bit different. A joint venture doesn't is it's not the it's not the same in in the GPLP structure. But basically, what a capital raiser does is again, I've got a list of investors who you know want to invest in real estate. Then what my job is is to find the top markets, and within those top markets, find the best what we call operators and sponsors, basically the ones who are buying, owning, and operating the the real estate. And through that, I vet first the operator, right? Check their track record. Have they done this before? How many times have they done it? Whatever their deals look like. Maybe talk to some of their investors who have invested in their deals before. You know, Ask about maybe a deal that didn't go as well as they thought. Get an understanding of you know, the team, uh, Ideally, I get to meet them in person, right? You know, fly out to their office. So through all of that, you kind of vet the the sponsor. And then from there, you'll look at a deal. And like you said, you know, kind of look at the returns. You know, does this fit the profile of my investors? If it does, then I'll send it out to my list. And then typically, the most common structure is due to regulation is for me to then join the general partnership. And by joining the general partnership, you know, I'll get basically a, a percentage depending on the deal and, and some different uh, variables will determine how much I get. Typically, typically going to depend how much money I'm bringing and, and some other variables. But then what will happen is as part of the general partnership, I then have to be a part of all of the operation throughout the life of the deal. And some of these deals are three, five, seven, even 10 year holds. And so what that means is every time the general partnership has a meeting, I need to be involved and not just like, you know, on the Zoom call, but involved in the decision making, involved in some of the other parts of the business, right? The asset management and some of these parts. And the reason is, is because you can't get compensated for the capital that you bring to a deal by itself. So they can't pay me like a 2% fee of the money that I bring to the deal. Uh, and then I go on my merry way. Uh, so this is how you kind of get around that. Now, what I can do is I can go get licensed, which ironically I was licensed and those expired, but I could go get relicensed, then work for what they call broker dealer and under that broker dealer, I could literally just raise money for a deal, take a percentage and move on. And then the third way is a fund model where you basically create your own LLC. You bring your investors in, they invest in the LLC. You're the general partner of the LLC or the fund manager. And then that fund goes as a single limited partner to the deal. So those are kind of the three uh, most common structures in kind of the capital raising uh, side of the business to be a part of these deals and to stay within the regulations of the SEC.
enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have a, we have something similar here called the AMF. Um, and then there's a whole business of like, you know, accredited investors and under what auspices you can um, approach people. What does their net worth have to be? Da da da. So we, we, were, we don't necessarily need to get into that. But uh, no. So like what I draw from that is that basically like you're getting compensated for generating upside. It sounds that's how you you structure it. And so when you say you got to pick the operators and then you got to, you know, really be in there and understand the deal that's going to directly affect how you make money and then what you're able to promise on the other side to your investors. So like I, I uh, understand that quite well. I like uh, the more common model in our, our audience will usually be uh, people who are the operators, right? And then like we go out and try to raise capital in which, whichever way we do or partner with people who have capital. But like, so I'm, you know, I'm a property manager. I'm the boots on the ground person who tries to say, hey, I have an interesting market here are you interested in it? And then either work with a capital raising guy or raise the capital yourself, depending on what your network is. So it's, it's a similar kind of a structure. Yes. Yep. Yep. Very similar. We have the same kind of thing with the accredited status and non-accredited and net worth and all that as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So if we like get off uh, specifically the brass tacks of the business model for a second and, and like, let's talk about you and, and your journey. And, you know, one of the things that I like to people ask people who come on the show is like they have this impression, people generally have this impression that like you get into real estate, you do two, three deals, and then like you're going to be on your yacht posting Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I want to do those deals. (laughs) And I like to kind of poke that um, just by asking the guests who come on, like, so tell me about some of the lifestyle hits that you had to take, maybe that you're still taking on the path to being where you want to be in this because i think you know if i, I i'm transparent myself like you know when i started investing i lived in a bad part of town on the ground floor of a triplex with my tenants for 10 years until i managed to build my thing to, to leverage myself out of there but like that's like a lifestyle hit that people don't tell you about so you want to tell me about some of the lifestyle hits you've taken on your on your path or maybe that you're still taking Absolutely. Wow. What a great, uh, great question. No, almost nobody talks about it. And it's funny being in the beginning of it. And I don't even talk about it quite enough, right? Because nobody really understands unless you're doing, and that's not to take away from anybody doing anything else, right? And maybe you have a, a job or whatever it is, but yeah, some of the specific hits I've taken. So I, I bought my house four years ago. Uh, had a W-2 job at the time, got a, a screaming deal on it. And because it was like a rental unit and, and needed some work, so it was kind of a fixer-upper, got a screaming deal on it, got a, a good interest rate. But one hit that I took is when interest rates like really dropped during the pandemic, I didn't have enough like uh, secure income to go and refinance. So while my uh, interest rate is still very good and very low compared to what interest rates are right now, 
it's not what it could be. So right now I have a 4.12 interest rate and people were getting two and a half to 3% interest rates during that refinance. So there's one hit I couldn't, couldn't do because as a borrower, I just didn't look good as a borrower despite having good credit and, you know, low, low debt. You know, I don't have that stable income, which lenders want to see, especially in the residential space. Right. So that's one hit I took. Another one is I've been driving. Let me, let me yeah. stop. Let me stop for one second because I really want to highlight what you just said. I have not had a guest come on the show and say that, but I think, you know, everybody else who does what we do, right, who's like in the real estate space and like it might even be like I've been doing this for 20 years and there have been times when I can't go to the bank and get a loan, a, a single family loan. I can get all the commercial or multifamily loans that I want my dog could get a multifamily loan, but like I can't refinance my house because whatever income I'm declaring or, or whatever my situation happens to be at a specific time, maybe I didn't have enough capital gains last year. And like, this is a very, very common problem for people who are career investors or career real estate people, because either you're in between deals, you're not declaring enough income because it's in companies or else you're not maybe making enough money because of where you are in your trajectory. And so like, even though people think we live this high flying lifestyle, that this is a that's a very very good point. So I just wanted to like flag it. Yeah, when I when I bought my house, I had because I had worked in the stock market, I had a really significant stock account, and but because I like left my high paying job and went basically entry level into into tech startup, I didn't have great income, and at that time my uh, credit score wasn't super great. And so I still didn't even get as good of an interest rate as I could have gotten, despite literally almost being able to buy my house in cash, which is just fascinating. We could have a whole conversation about residential lending. Anyway, another uh, another important one is uh, I've been driving the same truck. So my truck is a 2010 Tacoma, you know, so it's what, 13 years old now. Uh, and so I've still been driving the same vehicle. It's got 220,000 miles on it. Super, super grateful that it's still operating and functioning with just, uh, you know, routine maintenance, starting to get some character flaws, you know, showing its age for sure. But there's another one right there. I would love to have a new truck. Like I've been literally building my dream truck in my head for like three years. But again, you know, that's kind of one of those sacrifices because I know eventually it'll come. Um, so there's that, you know, I used to travel a ton. Traveling has really any sort of unnecessary travel, meaning like obviously I went to PodFest, right? That's that's a business expense. So outside of, of business travel uh, in the last at least year, especially, so I started Katani Capital Group in January of last year. Um, since then, I have done minimal um, leisurely travel. Yeah, no, I think that's also, you know, I two great examples. I was that you were telling me about your car. I was also thinking, yeah, you know, I used to, um, when I did a bit less investing and I used, I used to do a bit more brokering, um, I used to drive, you know, a BMW X1 and I was like, you know, happy to show up in my shiny object. And like now, because most of my uh, calls are to properties and I invest in low income property, um, I made a decision. I now drive a, a Volkswagen um, and so a golf. So like I made a decision to like really go with a less ostentatious car, um, even though the payments are not that different, but just because I didn't want to be showing up, uh, you know, as the, as the rich investor. So that's like, uh, you know, a hit. Um, and same thing with travel. Like I think a lot of people, 
um, end up taking a hit, be it like on their leisure time. They just have less time to, you know, go out and have fun for themselves. Because when you're building something, like that's where a lot of your time and effort goes into, or, you know, also financial constraints that make up uh, expensive vacations difficult when you're reinvesting so much in the business that it becomes more of a priority to build what you're doing and then understand that it's going to pay you back later. Um, but that if you have goals, often it's not to. Absolutely. I mean, I even forgone buying, like, you know, Salt Lake City, Utah has some of the best skiing, you know, in North America. We're having, if I understand correctly from what I hear, we're having one of, if not the best uh, winter in terms of snowfall. In fact, I'm literally snowed in right now. It's been snowing for 12 straight hours. There's probably a foot and a half of snow outside my front door right now. And two years ago, I would have been in the mountains right now. I'd be skiing, but I didn't even buy a ski pass this year. Now, luckily I backcountry ski, so it's not super necessary, but like I would have been skiing today, you know? And, and of course, you know, I don't buy a ski pass this year and we're having <laughs> the best years. And that's just those little tricks that the universe plays on you just to make sure you really want to be doing what you're doing. But I know that in five years, 10 years, I'm going to look back and it's all just going to be a blip and I'm going to be very grateful for the decisions that I made. But these are the things that people, you know, need to make. Like, I don't have a car payment because my truck's paid off. Right. And, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I, it's so hard for me to save money. It's hard for me to increase my income. And they're driving a BMW, you know, they've got a three, four, $500 a month car payment. I'm like, well, if you sold that and went and bought something cash and just accepted that you're going to drive something for five years, that'll just get you from A to B, I bet you'd be able to save money and invest. But, you know, people don't want to make those sacrifices and, and that's okay. It, it's not for everyone, but, um, you know, in my eyes, it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, I think in your eyes and every other, uh, you know, professional investor that I talk to, like, that's why I love this part of the show, because like we get to, you know, really kind of <laughs> exchange war stories and be like, look, like this is the way I hustled. These are the hits I took to get where I am. And it's, you know, it's like if you want to, um, you know, be a, an elite athlete in any sport, like you're going to be practicing through pain. You're going to be watching what you eat. You're going to be getting up early to train. Like you're going to be do doing all these things and making these sacrifices that somehow in our culture, we like assume it goes with success in sports, but we don't assume that it goes with success in investing because all everybody sees is the Instagram feed at the end where you have tons of money or because like on the one day your broker hired a private jet and you got to go on it, right? Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And that's a thing that I'm doing with like the podcast and my social media is I'm tracking everything, right? The good, bad, the ugly. And so people can follow along the whole way. Whereas like you said, so many people don't really start telling their story and, you know, building until they can, you know, stand in front of the Ferrari and the, and in front of the private jet and on the private jet. And those are all great things. Don't get me wrong. Like I would love to be able to fly private, of course, but you know, I, I'm not a flashy person. And that's one thing I'm working on because it's, it's kind of a little bit of annoyance that I have in society where in order for people to trust that, you know, what you're doing, you have to be flashy. And that just seems silly to me. Uh, but you know, with social media, that's kind of the world we live in. Yeah. But I, you know, I, uh, I think we, uh, we're similar in this respect. Like I'm also, you know, not naturally a flashy person. And at a certain point, you know, when I was doing more brokering, I thought that like, that's how you, you know, you got to show up in the fancy car and you got to like always be well dressed. But like, the fact is, 
your partners and your clients and the people you work with will come to appreciate you for what you are. And if they know you're going to tell it straight and you're down to earth, like there's a market for that too. It's just maybe a couple of steps away on the chessboard. Um, but I want to, so like I'm, I'm having so much fun talking. The time is just going. Um, yeah. I'm going to get to the last question, which is like another, another kind of question like this, which is in our industry, um, there's a lot of stuff that we don't talk about. And what do you think besides this lifestyle hit aspect, what should we be talking about in our industry that we're not talking about? Is there any subject that you feel like doesn't get addressed enough? Yeah, there's a couple, uh, like specifically to becoming an investor or just like in the industry itself, whatever it is, like something where you see that, like, I wish, like, if I could put a message out there into the world, this would be the thing that I think people should talk about or should know that they don't know. Yeah. So one thing I'll say is, so first of all, you know, I believe everybody should have uh, real estate in their portfolio in some form or fashion. Right. And that looks different for everyone. Right. For me, I don't like wholesaling and, and fix and flipping. Right. It's very transactional. But what a lot of people don't talk about is when you get into this industry on the active side, meaning you want to actually own and operate the the real estate, it's a job. Right. And even if you have a job and you're buying just duplexes or maybe you're just buying single family homes on the side, you know, or even if you're doing short term rentals, you know, whatever it is, what people don't really talk about is that is a job. Right. I don't, I don't like it's a side hustle. But, you know, if you're growing and your goal is to continue to grow it, it's a job. And so what I tell people is, if you want real estate to replace your income, like if you want to get into real estate full time, then choose the active side. Do that. You know, if, and if you need to start small, fine, right? If you need to start with a single family house and work your way up to the duplex and then, you know, maybe a six unit, whatever it is, and kind of scale up from there, that's great. And eventually you will get to the point where it can replace your income and, and you can make that your full time job. But so many people get stuck in like, oh, I'm going to have, six houses and pay them all down. And then, you know, there'll be no debt on them and I'll be making all this money. And you're like, yeah, sure you can. And and that, that can work, but that's a side hustle along the way. You're going to manage those yourself. It's going to be very challenging. And unless those aren't in the same spot, like logistically, you know, together, then you might be bouncing around your town, you know, and taking calls at all hours of the night if something's not working properly. And so, and and it's not to uh, sweat, like turn people away. I'm just saying like, be prepared for that. Like that will be part of it. You are going to have to manage this asset, right? And even if you're buying apartments and you bring in property management, you still have to manage that manager. So no matter what, you're going to be doing a, a job more or less, right? For me, I happen to love it. So it doesn't feel like work. But if you have a full-time W-2 job, um, and then you're also doing this, like so many people are like, oh man, it's so much work. And it's like, well, yeah, what did you think? Right? Like it's, it's going to be another job. But so what I tell people is if you're choosing the active side, be prepared for that. The nice thing is, is if you like what you're doing in the corporate world or whatever it is, you can be passive. There are plenty of opportunities to be a passive investor and you can just collect and participate without, you know, even having to sign on the loan. So you're 
even you know one more uh, step protected uh, from liabilities, and and you can build a passive portfolio to eventually replace your active portfolio and never have to get your hands dirty. So one thing that people struggle with is they're so shocked when they start buying these properties and you know whatever kind of they want to go into and it's a job and it's like well you know what did you expect like you know there's work required here i feel like so many people see these instagram investors and they think that they just like magically got this hundred unit portfolio and there's no work involved and it's just so easy and look i'm making ten thousand dollars a month in passive income look how i did it and it's like yeah but you got to tell people realistically how difficult it is to get there and if they want to do it great help them but you know also explain there's another side of the industry where you don't have to get your hands dirty and you can still do other things yeah i i really think that's a a great distinction and and i think that that is something that um you know i think us in the industry were all sort of aware of that but i think you just had a very like succinct way of putting it and like it's it's absolutely true because like as i'm listening like you know i am the operator i'm the one who manages the properties, who goes out there, who goes to the rental board, who like does all of those things. And I can tell you, it's a full-time job. Like that's what I do from when I get up in the morning and go to bed at night and I'm not podcasting, right? Like that's, (laughs) that's what I do with my time. And absolutely, like I think investing in real estate does not have to be synonymous with doing that. You can invest in real estate with partners who know what they're doing. And that involves either you know, going through some kind of capital thing or else getting into a joint venture with someone who's going to do all that active stuff. And uh, and I think that's a, a good sort of line to draw um, that, that people can understand that you don't have to be operating 10 properties to invest in 10 properties. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, look, we're just about out of time. Um, I want to say thank you. This has been a, a fun conversation, just flew by. <laughs> it always uh, does. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's fair. It really, that's really fair. Fun. It flew by today. Um, so look, why don't you uh, tell our audience where they can get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Yeah, absolutely. So you can, um, I'm working on a video series right now, but you can get in early and, and um, if you sign up now, you'll, you'll get it first. It's it's basically kind of a, a five-step program of how to get into your first passive investment. Um, so you can go to investwithkatani.com. Uh, last name is spelled C-A-T-T-A-N-I. You can listen to my podcast, which uh, Terry will be a guest on uh, soon, which I'm looking forward to. That's called The Cashflow Chronicles. Uh, And then, you know, of course, I'm on Instagram uh, at Johnny Catani, J-O-N-N-Y-C-A-T-T-A-N-I. Okay, well, I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.